You are listening to the Bondzilla Podcast. The Bondzilla Podcast is a bi-monthly analysis of two of cinema's longest-running franchises, James Bond and Godzilla. This week, James Bond returns to his Cold War roots as he takes on vengeful women and very young figure skaters. It's 1981's For Your Eyes Only. Your mic is not on. <laughs> I didn't even check. Yeah. <laughs> well, you should have checked. Keeping too. it in. I'm keeping it in. Hello, everybody. It humanizes the show a yes. little bit by having, um, by having mistakes. Yes. Yeah. Hello, everybody. Once again to another edition of the Bondzilla podcast. My name is Nick, and I'm Will. And uh, as usual, we are talking about Bond and Godzilla movies, going in them each in order, and uh, yes. discussing the two longest running franchises in the history of cinema. Yeah. Um. I am. I. I am excited to talk about this one. Me too. For British eyes only. No. 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 For your eyes only. We, I thought this was the running gags in Arrested Development podcast. That would be a very long podcast as well, because there's a lot of them. <laughs> Where we just delve into every uh, running gag. Yeah. That's got to be a podcast. I'm somewhere. sure. Yeah. That's one of those like micro podcasts. Right. Like they have like five to 10 minute episodes. Anyway. Anyway, so for your eyes only. Yes. Directed in the 80s. Yep. So uh, for your eyes only. And right now it's going to be for your ears only because you're listening to the Bondzilla podcast episode about for your eyes only. Did, did you... Did you have that planned? Did you write that down? No. Oh, okay. Because <laughs> it, it was very calculated, it yeah. seemed. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so, um, let's talk about For Your Eyes Only. Uh, so, we begin uh, right after the release of Moonraker. Uh, and it has been become the most successful, the highest grossing Bond movie of all time at that point. Mm. And so, the Bond franchise is riding high. In space. Yes, it, it, literally. Yeah. And um, and then now it's like we got to ground this. Yes, Cubby sits sits down and and thinks about what's next for for the Bond team at Eon. Um, but Cubby is is has this thought of just where can we really go? We've been to space. We've done the biggest thing we could possibly do. Where do we go? So he brings in um, the rising star of Eon, and I haven't really mentioned this because I just found this out, but he's actually Michael Wilson, uh, Michael G. Wilson, as I've mentioned before. Mm-hmm. Um, he's, he's Cubby Broccoli's stepson. So he okay. brings in his stepson uh, and kind of has a discussion with him about where the, where the franchise should go. And, and Michael G. Wilson talks about how if they keep going bigger, they're eventually just going to get way too silly. Mm-hmm. Not, that, not that these movies haven't been silly, but mm-hmm. they're just going to get more insane right and just it's it's never going to end huh so his thought was why don't we take a step back why don't we get back to the novels back to the fleming like the grounded reality of stuff that we had in like uh you know dr no and from what she with love kind of that early just kind of grounded cold war spy thriller and mm-hmm. cubby 100 percent agrees so he makes michael g wilson one of the executive producers on the franchise, and uh, from there, it's, it's basically Michael G. Wilson's you know arc to be becoming the new head of the Bond franchise. From there, um, but it's it's really Michael G. Wilson's film to uh, take in, right? So they do have <laughs> they do have. Sometimes when we do this podcast, this is where it, it, it's 
it's such a shame that it's an audio only yeah. venue because sometimes you can't see it, but sometimes Nick, when he's about to deliver, like. <laughs> A big bombshell. Yeah, you can. I just know it's coming. <laughs> so they have. They do have very brief discussions with Steven Spielberg. What <laughs> to direct for your eyes only? Um, Who notoriously has, at least from my understanding, has always wanted to do yes. a Bond movie. So because he they they first talked to him. Remember uh, they'd used the um, music from uh, Close Encounters mm-hmm. in Moonraker, and that was the first time they had discussions. And by this point. You know, Spielberg had made Jaws. He had made Close Encounters. You know, he was a you know a a name name director now. Right. Yeah. And so there were discussions with him briefly about possibly doing a Bond movie. Uh, but Cubby still felt at this time that he wanted to kind of keep things British, and he had other ideas, which I'll get to in a second about who should be the director. So. Yeah. Those discussions uh, were that, very. I don't brutal. think this Spielberg guy is uh, up to it. Yeah, it, uh, don't worry for him though, because it was it was soon after this that he talked to George Lucas, and George Lucas said, "Why don't we make our own?" Yep, Bond nah, I was just about to say this. Yeah, and, and so that is the you know after this is when he creates his own Bond in Indiana Jones. Yeah, so mm-hmm. I think more things worked out for yeah. Uh, Steve. Uh, but instead, what Cubby idea is is that he wants to kind of promote what from within, like with Michael G. Wilson kind of coming up from. Coming up the ranks of creative, he decides to uh, promote John Glenn, who we've talked about in the past. He's been an assistant director and an editor mm-hmm. on three previous Bond movies, uh, uh, Honor Majesty's Secret Service, By Who Loved Me, and Moonraker. Uh, he was, you know, he's been noted for doing, uh, taking charge of those big, crazy stunt action sequences. You know, the opening sequence of. Spy Who Loved Me, the Bob, the the, the snow chase in Honor Majesty Secret Service, and the skydive in in uh, the last movie, uh, Moonraker. And he's taken control of these. He's been great. He's been great with the actors and stuff like that. And Cubby's like, you know, that kind of direction is what kind of what we need. So they bring in Glenn, and they start developing what will become Fear Eyes Only. Mm-hmm. So um, they bring back also um, screenwriter Richard Maybaum, who. Wrote, has written a bunch of these movies. And they discuss how Michael D. Wilson and Maybaum discuss what they want to do. So they decide they are going to combine two of the Bond short stories because they're out of novels now. Um, excuse me. <clears throat> Sorry. How dare you? This is a professional <laughs> podcast. Yeah. Uh, they're out of novels because, again, they don't own the rights to Casino Royale at this time. They've used all the Bond novels that they can. So all they have left from Fleming's side of things are the Bond short stories that he would write for publications like Playboy and and all that sort of stuff, where they had you know Playboy wrote mm-hmm. you know published a lot of these stories, <laughs> um, so they take two stories. They take For Your Eyes Only, the short story, which is about um, Bond on M's behalf, uh, investigating the murder of the Havelocks of friends of M, uh, and then him stopping their daughter from getting revenge, and then you also have another story, Risico, which is a story about Bond. Uh, trying to figure out who his ally is and who his villain is between these two men, Chris Alvos and Columbo. And, of course, yes, or if you know For Your Eyes Only, you've seen the movie, those are two very familiar elements. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the screenwriting process is them kind of combining these two stories. It's very much, in a similar sense, kind of a, a better process of what happened from Rush With Love, where it's like, oh, let's take this story, but it's at Inspector. Right. This one is like, let's take these two stories and see if we can combine them in this interesting way. And the way they combine them is using... Kind of a classic Cold War trope. Again, something similar to From Russia with Love. Which? The, that, a, the ATAC uh, 
submarine communication device. But as they develop the script, Maybaum is really enjoying working with Michael, Michael Wilson, and officially asks Wilson to be a co-screenwriter with him. Uh, which again is just another big step for for Wilson in terms of being a creative force on these movies. Uh, and as they kind of get the rest of the crew together, a lot of it is just people coming up from Eon. Like as Ken Adam wasn't available, so one of his assistant production designers that's been on the franchise since Goldfinger steps up uh, to become the new head of production. And it's just that with the whole team. It's at this point, Covey really trusts his Eon team to kind of put together these Bond movies. As they're developing this movie, though. There is a debate about Roger Moore returning. Okay. Because Roger Moore's original contract has now run out with Moonraker, and now he's kind of going off one film deals. Mm -hmm. And there's a little discussion about from Roger if he doesn't know if he wants to come back, and Eon if they want to do a new director uh, with a new Bond. But but Glenn kind of really pushes for for Roger because he's kind of nervous about doing. It's really like is one of his first major directorial roles, he being you know promoted from assistant director to director. And he kind of wants a solid ground of like, I know what kind of Bond I'm working with. Mm -hmm. But as they develop the script and with that unknown knowledge of if Roger Moore is returning, Glenn kind of pushes to put a lot of references and nods to the classic Bond tropes and classic Bond character. Uh, just to kind of, he really feels that he wants to connect the Bond mm -hmm. legacy. So we'll talk about a little bit more when we get to the movie. But there's there's a lot of elements of just that kind of, Things we've seen in the older Bond movies, and yeah. and he was very passionate about like connecting, you know, Bond's history and, and kind of reminding you this is a single yeah. character with the, with the history and a past. Yeah. So like this is, so this kind of addresses just so I can get some input here. This kind of addresses something. So there's a few things I won't specifically say what they are, but there's a few things in this movie that made me question you mid movie. Yeah. In the in one of the many rare times I actually had to preemptively ask you a question yeah. about how. What was the – we're used to kind of like the fandom being, you know, king in movies right now yeah. where it's like you have like all these like, um, you know, comic book movies and Star Wars movies where, you know, callbacks and references and little Easter eggs is pre is a big deal. So I was wondering – there's little things in this movie that felt like that at the time. Mm -hmm. So I was wondering how much were people actually responding to Easter eggs. But it almost sounds like – that now James Bond is the thing where the people who really, really love it and are, you know, very close to it are working on it. So yeah. it might, maybe it came more from that. Yeah, it's rather an, than it's an, an element of following. Yeah, so there there is a following into the sense there are people that are fans of these movies. I mean, these movies are making lots of money. Right. And you know, these are you know, especially in this era, you know, right before the home video craze starts with. with VHS and Laserdisc, mm -hmm. you know, these are Bond movies. They would re-put them out in theaters every once in a while, especially mm -hmm. stuff like Goldfinger and, you know, Thunderball and stuff. They would get re-releases uh, in preparation for the new movies coming out. And, you know, now they would be start showing on TV a lot of times too, especially those early ones. So I think it does have a bit of a following, but I would agree with you just from what I saw. It's just a lot of it's just there's – Eon is a core team now, right? And then, like I said, they're set up just to make Bond movies. So everybody who's there at this point has been on it. Mm -hmm. It's pretty much since Dr. No and From Much With Love and Goldfinger. Like most of the people that are there are from that era. Mm -hmm. And so they do have a connection with the Bond character and the Bond team. And they like, you know, acknowledging that. And I, But I also think for Glenn, it was just a way for him as a new director to help the character. Yeah. You know, to help kind of figure out what he wants to do with the character of Bond. It's just that those little memories and those yeah. little moments of remembrance of the previous Bond adventures, I think, really kind of solidified his direction for the team. It's something to be said that a franchise does thrive because it is 
ultimately run from a little bit from within, but by people who actually are close to. Yeah. I think we've seen that, like, I mean, Lucasfilm, currently Marvel, mm-hmm. um, whereas you see, I'm not going to name names, but some other franchises may not be as thriving. And I'm not saying this is the only key, but I'm saying right. it helps when it's not just people even, who even, have to put out of, movies. Even with Toho, there's a sense of, like, there's... When like the most successful of those Godzilla movies are the ones where it's like the people who love yeah. working with Godzilla. Uh, I, an, I do think Toho's a little bit of like they just churn those movies. Out. I, I, I think with Toho, uh, Toho, it's a little bit more. But of the a, culture is different yeah. too. The way they make yeah. movies is. Completely I also think different. like Toho, it's more of a mix. It's not like one yeah. or the other. I think there is a subsection of like people who love working on those movies, but also, I think they love the craft of making those yes. movies a lot. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, so our Bond girl, our main Bond girl, yes. um, is uh, Melina Havelock in this movie. Ooh. And uh, she's played by a French actress and model named Carol Bouquet. <laughs> that's one of those ones where it's like, which one is the actress's name yeah. and which one is the Bond? Are you sure that's the that's the yeah. that's not the Bond girl? No, name? <laughs> Carol Bouquet is a real name. Um, she had auditioned for the role of Holly Goodhead in Moonraker, uh-huh. uh, but did not re- receive it. But she was very memorable. She uh, was memorable for her distinct eyes, her very bright blue eyes, and her dis- very distinctive hair. And when Glenn, she re-auditioned for this movie, and when Glenn saw the audition tapes, she, she just he just imagined that scene where she takes off her kind of hat or helmet, and after the crossbow sequence, she takes it off, and her hair just flows down, and mm-hmm. he just saw that, and it was like, there, I think that's going to work. That's our girl. And she was... Um, that's our girl. That's our girl. Uh, and by all accounts, she's uh, one a personal favorite in terms of an actress to work with of many of that older Bond team, uh, more... And Glenn said that she's just one of the nicest people to ever work on a Bond movie. So she's very well respected uh, among uh, those like the old school Eon mm-hmm. team. Um, and she was the future face of the Chanel uh, fragrance company as well, which mm-hmm. is a very, very big deal. If you don't know the history of Chanel faces, it's it's a very big deal to be the face of that company. So she would eventually get to that in the later 80s. And our villain is Julian Glover. Yeah. Uh, as Aristotle Christavos. Yes. Um, he was a very good friend of Roger Moore's. They had worked together for many episodes of the Saint TV series when Moore was doing that in the 60s. Um, and he was also once considered uh, as a James Bond back uh, around, really? the, around the time that Connery first left. Mm. Uh, he was considered for the part. And then again, for Live and Let Die, he was considered for the part, but uh, just didn't get it at that time. And by the time uh, this movie rolled around, they were like, oh, he's a little too old to play a Bond. Wink, <laughs> wink. Um, but he would make a really good villain. Right. Um, well, you you are missing his most uh, notable credit. You want to talk do, about do not, his most notable credit, General Veers from. Uh, oh from yes, the, that's right. I was from the I, Empire Strikes I, Back. I remember, yes, I remember. He, he, he was uh, um, the one of the uh, one of the named um, officers from uh, Star Wars: The Empire Strikes Back. Yeah, that is right. That is right. General Veers, prepare your men for battle. Or yes. whatever the line is. Yeah. yeah. So yes, he is a he is a Star Wars yeah. actor. So a little connection there to yeah. to Star Wars. Um, our next casting is uh, Topol. Yes, as uh, Columbo, as Milos Columbo. Uh, so Topol, his uh, most n- notable for um, Fiddler on the Roof. He's mm. the most famous from the film version and and on stage. He's played that role for basically his whole life. Very famous Israeli actor from Israel, um, and he was cast when uh, Dana Broccoli, Cubby's wife, mm-hmm. uh, Cubby and Dana were at a party with with Topol there. And he, she literally just apparent according to Topol, she literally went up to him, looked at him, is like, Cubby, what about uh, Topol for the role of Columbo? Mm-hmm. And Cubby's like, that could work. And Topol's like, all right, I'll, <laughs> I'll take the gig. 
Um, and just like, you know, the Topol uh, actually was the one who suggested a lot about his character, suggested the mustache, and also suggested the pits, the pistachios mm-hmm. uh, that he always is eating throughout the movie. Um, and like, you know, with Glenn and the team at this time, Wilson and Glenn, they are really on that classic Bond idea of just ideas from anywhere. So actors, you know, production designers, stuntmen, if you have an idea, bring it forward. So mm-hmm. they're very much in that, and, and that is an example, just including that randomly. Um, let's see. So we got three more castings I want to talk about. One is Lynn Holly Johnson. Yes. As um, the figure skater, the yes. very young figure skater in this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, BB B- 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 doll. So, wh- so which one of the Broccoli's was visiting a high school talent show and then decided to put them in a Bond movie? <laughs> is my question. Uh, yeah. So she was actually uh, a figure skating prodigy in her in her younger youth. Okay. Uh, she had won silver in in one of the major competitions, um, but decided instead of pursuing an Olympic career, she wanted to pursue an acting career. But uh, her history with figure skating was kind of what led her to this role in particular, since she is playing a figure skater in this movie. Um, so that was it. Uh, one one I want to mention, too. Um, so, like I said, mentioned before uh, in the last episode, uh, Bernard Lee, as M, did have cancer at this time. Mm-hmm. Uh, he did prepare to shoot uh, For Your Eyes Only. They did write him into the script. And uh, just unfortunately, he was just too sick. But by the time that his time to shoot would come around, he was just too sick. And he, mm-hmm. he died during uh, the production of the movie. So... Uh, instead of recasting the role of M, uh, they decided to kind of honor Bernard Lee by just saying M was on holiday. They didn't want to just do a last minute, mm-hmm. let's just put him in there. Uh, so basically, a lot of stuff is uh, of M that was in the movie was either given to Q mm-hmm. or uh, given to the character of Bill Tanner, MI6 Chief of Staff, uh, who had previously appeared very briefly in uh, Man with the Golden Gun, but is actually a character from the Ian Fleming books that gets a lot bigger role in kind of the Brosnan and Craig era of the films. Uh, we've seen him a couple times in those. He's played by a man named James Villar, and he just came out on the Who last. Who is he in the Craig movies? Is he that, like, assistant dude? Yes. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah that other guy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> I don't know the actor's name, but yeah. I'm like, oh, yeah. Yeah, he can visualize. Yeah, I know who he is, yeah. Uh, and then one last one, uh, we have Cassandra Harris mm-hmm. as the Countess Lisi von uh, Schall. Uh, she's the colombo's mistress who bond gets information by uh at the casino and she's only not only notable she's was an actress at her time a very a famous actress but she is notable because at the time she was pierce brosnan's wife oh really <laughs> and the first time that the cubby and the broccolis met pierce brosnan was on the set of free your eyes only uh-huh. and it's noted that from the first time that cubby broccoli met pierce brosnan in the back of his mind it's like that could be a future. That could yeah. be a future Bond. Which I mean, he does look no, like no, a Bond. He, he does. Yeah. <laughs> he does. Uh, so that's our major casting for this movie, uh, and then we just got some production to get through. All right, lay it on me. All right. So most of the filming for this movie is done in Greece, with a little bit in Italy and a little bit back at Pinewood in uh, London. Um, filming in Greece uh, does. There are some slight. Turns. Uh, they do want to film a scene at the famous Parthenon, uh, you know, the Greek Parthenon in Athens and all that sort of stuff. But the Greece government does not allow any filming at those places, at least at this time. So mm-hmm. you kind of have to reroute some of the script to kind of get around that. Um, but they also are filming uh, very famously in the Pindus Mountains. That's where the, kind of the climax of the movie comes in with the rock climbing sequence and the monasteries. 
So they make a deal with the local mayors and the local bishop to film on an adjacent mountain to where these all these monasteries are, uh, and all these monks live in these monasteries. But the monks don't see any of the money, and they don't like Bond movies. They don't like the violence on them. They don't really like movies in general. So they decide to protest the filming of mm-hmm. For Your Eyes Only. So while they're filming all this stuff on the adjacent mountain, the monks decide to stand on their mountains, wave bright lights around, and also put a lot of plastic and metal on their mountains so that the shots are just ruined. Mm-hmm. So this delays filming quite a bit. <laughs> and eventually, uh, it's a case that goes to the highest Greek Supreme Court about who actually owns the land and who has the right to it. <laughs> right. And it comes down to the fact that the monks own you know, the interiors of the monasteries, but the surrounding land does not belong to them. Mm-hmm. So they have no right to uh, disrupt the filming of the movie. Uh, but there's still a little bit of issue, but the team decide, just gets around it the best they can. They decide to build their own exterior of a monastery just to not deal with it on the mountain. So they build an exterior, and then all the interiors are done at Pinewood. Uh, but the major sequence that's filmed there is the rock climbing sequence. So there's two parts to this. One is uh, they do have to have some scenes of Moore mm-hmm. climbing up and down. Now, Moore doesn't get like the really high, you know, he's not really that high up. His fall is about four feet down. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Moore has vertigo. <laughs> <laughs> so he's very much a nervous wreck during the entirety of uh, that shoot. Um, but the real big stunt is by a man named Rick Sylvester, who did the stunt jump mm-hmm. on uh, Spy Who Loved Me, in which I called him Alex Sylvester, but his <laughs> name is Rick. I'm bad with names. <laughs> Sue me. You read these, though. <laughs> I just wrote it down wrong. <laughs> how did you How did you write Alex out of Rick? I don't know. Who knows? <laughs> I was rushing, I think. I was just like, oh, we just got to record. I got to write down something down. I think I realized, because if you listen back to that episode, I just keep calling him Sylvester, but I do say Alex at one point. But it's Rick Sylvester. Okay. Sorry, Rick, if you're listening. I apologize. Uh, so <laughs> he's alive. He's, he, he's an extreme stunt person by trade, but he's mostly known for his skiing. Mm-hmm. So he agrees to do this rock climbing sequence and the rock climbing fall and then goes to the stunt teams like, you got to help me out because I don't really know yeah, exactly like, what to do. Hey, uh, Rick, you're good at skiing, right? Uh, can you do some rock climbing for us? <laughs> and he's like, yeah, because he wants to work on another Bond movie. Yeah. So they kind essentially build, they, build, they build a contraption, the stunt team and, and the special effects team. It's basically kind of a sandbag throw type of thing where basically the sandbags like kind of lessen the weight of his fall. Or not lessen the weight. It lessens like the, I don't know what you call it. Like basically it makes his fall a little bit safer. Yeah. Okay. But Rick is still really nervous on the first day when he's going to do this because a, a trio of kind of bad omens to him happen. One is that. The ghost um, of Christmas past. Yes. <laughs> the ghost of rock climbing past, present, and future. No. So on the way to the shoot, they pass a funeral procession. Then when he looks at the device that's going to help him with the sandbags, it looks a little bit like a coffin. Mm -hmm. And then right from the place he's going to jump, he has a direct view of the local cemetery. (laughs) So even he's like, all right, this is not not a good sign. There's a lot of death surrounding this. Um, But he eventually does. It's it's about a 40-foot fall uh, for the the stunt where Bond falls from the rock and still hangs on. He's still roped in. And what's funny is that if you look really closely in the in the film, it's it's just a brief second, but he said he was so busy celebrating that he kind of forgot to kind of act for a little bit because he was like, I'm alive, I did it. Oh, wait, I got to like 
pretend I'm like going back to the mountain mm-hmm. to like get back. But you can kind of see him be like, yeah, like a little bit uh, in the finished product. Um, so it's another one of those big stunts. Um, they also filmed the big car chase sequence from the beginning of the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this kind of car chase is an exemplary of kind of what they were kind of going for in this film. In the sense that uh, they wanted to kind of not just to take down Bond from a plot standpoint, from front, also from his kind of gadget standpoint. Mm-hmm. He want, they wanted to make in a movie where Bond really relies on his wits and his mind and his physical prowess to really get out of those situations. So they do bring back very briefly the Lotus uh, from Spy Who Loved Me. Mm-hmm. but And we'll talk about more in the movie. But they instantly destroy it. And that's kind of the symbolism of, okay, we're stepping away from the cars that ha- can go underwater and shoot missiles. And right. now Bond's got to be in this kind of beetle bug car right. and like, you know, d- they just get out of it. We got to get Iron Man out of the suit, show that Tony Stark has what it takes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but just like with previous uh, movies that Glenn directed, that car chase sequence uh, through the mountains in Greece mm-hmm. uh, was very much improvised. Not necessarily like, oh, we're just do it. But it was planned in the sense that they got to the location, they saw kind of what they were working with and like, or what if we did this? Or what if we had a car land in a tree? And all that sort of stuff. It was just kind of like, Glenn really liked to kind of play with the location and and kind of just put stuff out there and see if it worked. Uh, again, safely as possible. But mm-hmm. that, that was a real hallmark of his directorial style. And again, it's that idea. Glenn and Eon just taking everything from everywhere. They want to make the best movie possible. There is no ego at this point. There's just a lot of... Let's just make something cool. Let's and everybody, it. it seems in the productions, on the same page of wanting to do this movie in general. Yeah, yeah. And it's and and the last thing I want to mention though is something where people weren't on the same page. It's a, oh, it's okay. A few, <laughs> As I say that, good yeah. segue. Um, and it really is one of the most interesting stories to me that comes out of the movie. It's relatively small, I think, but it, it's a really a hallmark of just how passionate people were about this film. Give me one second. Echo, cancel timer. I just didn't want it going off. All right, yeah. go ahead. So there's the uh, scene uh, kind of towards the, midway towards the end of the movie where Bond has to kick a car off a cliff with a guy in it. Yes, yes, there is. <laughs> and Moore initially does not want to do it uh-huh. because he feels it's, a, again, a very Connery Bond-ish to do. Mm-hmm. He feels like it doesn't really fit the portrayal of his Bond. He feels like it's a little bit too cold-blooded for that point in the film and that point in time. Mm-hmm. Uh, he argues that it's fine that if he throws the pin in, you know, he has the, there's a pin, th- he'll throw it in, and the car just kind of tips over. But Glenn is really passionate. Like, we want to kind of see a harder edge. We want to see that cold-blooded bond that is in the Fleming books, that is, you know, the harder edge for this harder edge movie. Mm-hmm. And he feels like just throwing the pin in doesn't give it that energy, doesn't give it that edge. So the day of that filming, there is a lot of debate, a lot of arguments, and a lot of discussion about how exactly that scene is going to go down. And eventually, Moore does relent and film the scene as it is written. But it's always was very because that's that's one of the stories I knew about Moore going into this, mm-hmm. uh, even going back to what we knew uh, when we poured Limonade Die, is that he's been very passionate about that scene. Does he just smack a woman into giving? Him information like two movies ago, but he. To be fair, he also didn't like. That. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Like, he did. I, I do he, remember he, that. He also argued against that. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, and he he just feels like 
you know, he, he, again, he's hard to that bond of like, he doesn't like to just kill, mm-hmm. you know, unless he really has a reason. Not, like he, yeah, he would, like, cold blooded. Like, like more would, more would argue that like, oh, the killing of Hugo Drax is fine. Cause the, Hugo Drax was a megalomaniac going to kill millions of people. But this guy is just like, he killed some people, but he's just, you know, mm-hmm. a com- as common of a criminal as others. Well, there's also a difference a little bit between like, you're in battle yeah. and you kill somebody as opposed versus to- this person is trapped, about to die, yeah. and then you t- you slowly take the last step to make sure they're murdered. Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's and it, I just, I mean, it's, you know, I just felt that it was really interesting to bring up just because, you know, again, it's as much as people, there are passionate people and people who do love Bond mm-hmm. working at Eon at this time and more, you know, for all the goofiness and all the sillinesses of his movies, I, he, you know, one of the things I really commonly saw in this bonus features in particular is just everybody says that at this point, Moore is just the happiest person alive mm-hmm. just to play Bond because it's just he has so much fun and he has the best job in the world. And I think he's just very protective of that character now that he's been that character for, you know, this is his fifth mm-hmm. Bond film. He's inhabited the Bond character. Right. And I feel like he's found that sweet spot of what he wants to see. And, you know, it's just an interesting kind of debate. Well, it's a dynamic. I mean, you play a character even if it's a legacy character. If you're going to play them, you want to have some input in how mm-hmm. it's played. Yeah. And that's what I got for now. All right. And, uh, you know, it was a very, again, a very interesting production. But the main idea is that it's it's Bond taking a step back, Bond going back to his roots. Yeah. Uh, at the same time as Eon is really solidifying itself as an in-house production team. Well, Nick, that sounded like a very professional, very tight, very solid production for a movie. How <laughs> is the result this? <laughs> And not in a bad way, just we'll talk about it. Yeah, we'll talk about For Your Eyes Only coming up next. You left this with Ferrara, I believe. <laughs> Had no head for heights. Nick, I'm just going to come straight out and say it. Yeah. This movie is insane. This movie is ludicrous, stupid, just mind-boggling. This movie is bonkers. The (laughs) definition of bonkers. This movie is crazy. At one point, Nick, in this movie, I don't know if you were there. You may have been because you watched the movie with me, but I had to get up at one point. And just leave, just like kind of just walk away for a minute because I just couldn't handle how stupid this, something this was. This movie was was for me, um, <laughs> again, with the last three more films, it's, those are films I haven't seen in a long time. So mm-hmm. they're all still like, I know generally what happens in them, but they're all still kind of fresh and surprising. It's just, it doesn't, in, in comparison to like Goldfinger and, you know, Spy Who Loved Me, where I know those films front to back, I know every little tidbit these ones are films that yeah i know the basic plot i remember elements of it and you know but this is a film that was in many ways surprising right and and in many ways something i thoroughly enjoyed and uh it's kind of like me with the showa series of godzilla movies where i'm a little bit more familiar when it gets into like the 80s and the 90s but but this movie this this was a really fun one to rediscover and i gonna say it's it's up there among you know the favorite things that we've watched so yeah, far it, it's just you know maybe not necessarily like 
top like best of all time, but like, in terms of just uh, having a fun watch, I, I'd rank it pretty high. Every now and then, you just need stupid, mm-hmm. and that's what this movie was for me. And I, I, I honestly, there's a lot to. I think there's a lot to like about For Your Eyes Only. Yeah. Just, just in terms of just as a movie itself, and mm-hmm. we'll talk about it. So, what, where do you want to begin? I well, as we always, I think because we have our new segment of the show in yeah. which uh, I explain the plot <laughs> or what I think the plot of the movie yeah. is. Uh, now. I, I didn't write it down. I should have written it down, but I, I'm going to go by memory. And, Nick, I, I do want to preface this by saying that I I do not know what the movie is about. So I'm going to go. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to go. with Keep that in mind as I explain it. All right. So Bond. Yeah. Um. There is. Okay. So there's some sort of boat. Yeah. And there is a box on the boat. Mm-hmm. And it's an evil box of some kind. And it, it's a box that can make things explode that it, it, okay it's a box that could control every bomb in the world <laughs> and if you press the right com- the winning combination you get all the launch codes win all the money at every lottery and you get every the result of every game it's basically the almanac from back to the future part 2 mm. so meanwhile bond goes and he goes to find the guy who may be responsible for this. But then uh, the Bond girl shows up, uh, Miss Chardonnay or whatever. What's her name? Carol Boucher Car- plays <laughs> Melina Havelock. Yeah, M- Melina Havelock, who may or may not be a robot. The movie's never 100% clear on this. Um, it intervenes because she has her own agenda because that guy killed killed the killed her father and her mother and then bond's like oh man what am i gonna do now and they're like well i think this guy actually stole the box so bond's like all right i'm gonna go find that guy and then a lot of stuff happens but then eventually they end up underwater Mm -hmm. and then they find the box in the boat and then they're like oh man all right we found the box but then the bad guy is on the boat and he's like haha no we found the box and they're like oh no we got to give you the box so then they go escape up to the mountains and then James Bond has to go to the mountains but he can't unless he's dressed up as a monk and then they beat the bad guys and then Bond's like destroys the box and he's like nobody gets the box nobody gets to blow up all the bombs that's what I think the plot of the movie is. All right, let's get to the aftermath. This movie made a lot of money. Uh, so the basic plot, to be real here, is... Well, how close was I? Well, let's see how... Oh, okay, all right, yeah, all right, all right. All right, so um, the AT, uh, ATAC system, which mm-hmm. is a system for uh, the British submarines to communicate with each other uh, to give them targets and information... Uh, a boat with one of those on it sinks. Mm-hmm. And uh, the British are worried because if the Russians get their hands on it, um, there is a potential that they can, you know, make contact with submarines, alter routes, alter bombs, have things, you know, have submarines shoot at each other because they'll have all the codes to communicate with all the submarines. So they task Bond on a very top secret mission. Mm-hmm. It's only like Bond and MI and the people in that room and Q that know about it. Um, uh, to go ahead and find the ATAC system, the ATAC system. Mm-hmm. And from there, it's a spy game of trying to figure out who might be trying to sell it to the Russians and trying to find uh, the location of the box. Uh, because the Havelocks uh, were hired by the British government to find the location, and they are the only people who know. So finding those records and finding where the actual ATAC system is is the key to all this. 
Meanwhile, Bond, you know, is dealing with Melina trying to get revenge for her parents' death mm-hmm. and also trying to figure out between uh, Columbo and Christavos who is actually uh, the real villain here. Nick, so, that all sounds extraordinarily boring. Talk about the guy when he throws a motorcycle at Bond. <laughs> Can we talk about that instead? Yeah, well, yeah. I think we should talk about the beginning of this movie. Okay, so my note on the beginning, so there's a couple things about the beginning I like. The first thing I noticed, which is interesting that you bring up, they want to bring up the stuff from the Bond canon thus far, yeah. and it opens up on Bond's wife's grave, yes. which I thought, like, oh, that was interesting. Um, so, But my overall note for the cold open of this movie, as I have it right here, it says, so the cold opening, cool, but what? <laughs> so to paint the picture, yeah. Bond is being picked up from the, the cemetery. Right, so he goes to his wife's grave, and it has, you know, Tracy Bond, we had all the time in the world, all references to Honor Magic Secret Service. A very actually like nice way to, to kind of call back to it. Right. Yeah. yeah. So he and then he he's at the grave and the priest comes up is like, Mr. Bond, your office called. Uh there's an emergency. Uh they're sending a helicopter for you. And Bond's like, There's always an emergency. Thank you, sir. And then so he gets in the helicopter. Right. And so he gets in the helicopter and then it's actually being controlled by a bald man in in a in a in a wheelchair. Very reminiscent of um, Blofeld, I guess. But somewhat, it's not, it's not Blofeld. So, somewhat reminiscent of Blofeld because he has a cat. Yes, and he controls. He remotely controls the helicopter mm-hmm. into trying to kill Bond, and then Bond gets Bond gets the upper hand. Uh, he, he, and then he starts controlling the helicopter, in which he's able to pick up uses one of the the feet of the helicopter to pick up fake Blofeld. Yes. And drop uh, him. Official credit is bald man in wheelchair. Bald man in wheelchair, and drop him and his cat. By the way, yeah, into a smokestack. Yes. What? So this whole opening sequence. What I will say though, the the helicopter stunts in this scene are extremely impressive. Yes. Like I was very. Yeah. No, it was really cool because actually, so the part where the helicopters in the building, the yeah. part where the helicopters in the building, they put it just a real helicopter on basically a track inside the studio and put Roger Moore in it and just kind of. Let it go forward. Mm-hmm. So that's really cool. Uh, but the entire concept of the opening sequence was the Cubby Broccoli idea. And it's a big middle finger, a big fuck you to <laughs> Kevin McClory. Uh-huh. Because so Kevin McClory at this time has officially sealed off the rights to Spectre and Blofeld to his his own name. <laughs> and it's very clear at this point that he is going to ramp up and he is going to make a basically a Thunderball remake. He is going to make his own Bond movie. Mm-hmm. So Cubby's like, fine, we don't need Blofeld, we don't need Spectre, let's just kill him off right here, let's show Kevin we don't need you, we don't need your Spectre, right. we're all good. So Somebody, uh, a friend of mine, um, he said that there was like some sort of inside joke also within that inside joke. Yeah, so yeah. at one point, um, as Bond takes uh, Bald Man in Wheelchair yeah, up, yeah. And he's not Blofeld, not, by the way. Not Blofeld. Bald yeah. Man in Wheelchair. Yeah. We, we uh, don't want to get sued. We don't want to get sued either by the ghost of Kevin McClory. Um, at one point, you know, Blof- uh, fake Blofeld, Bald Man in Wheelchair, is pleading for his life. And he says... Which, by the way, this is all super, visually super impressive. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It looks great. Um, he, he, he says to Bond as he's pleading for like, no, Mr. Bond, please don't. And he says, I'll buy you a delicatessen in stainless steel. <laughs> <laughs> Which was um, in reference to Cubby Broccoli heard that like when he was young in New York, um, he heard uh, gangsters kind of say that 
in terms of said like, oh, I'll buy you a, like a brand new deli, you know, with stainless steel tops and the, the nicest stuff if you, you know, are loyal to me, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's just an inside joke within the inside joke of fuck you, Kevin McClory. We don't need your Blofeld. We don't need your Spectre. We right. got we got we got Bond right here. We got all the Bond <laughs> we need. Yeah. At one point, Nick. Yeah. And and this episode may just me being every now and then just interrupting you right. with something insane that happens. At one point, Nick. Yeah. Bond escapes a, a like a, a, a <laughs> Bond escapes a like a wall, like a walled off like swimming pool area yeah. by taking one of the umbrellas. <laughs> Opening it up and floating down to safety. Yeah, so just so I want to talk a little bit more about the sequence, but just for the context of where it leads up to. So after the opening sequence, we see uh, you know the submarine uh, or the boat sink. It's it disguised as a fishing boat, mm-hmm. and there's like you know very high tech uh, you know spy submarine stuff inside. Then the boat picks up a you know a, a sea mine, and the boat explodes and sinks, and then it cuts to Bond. With uh, the Minister of Defense and uh, Bill Tanner, and just basically relaying that information. Hey, you know, here's the plot, all that sort of stuff. Right. Then we also cut to, um, well, actually, before that, excuse me, uh, we have the Havelock family reuniting. Right. So Melina is coming in to visit her parents who are, you know, out to sea looking for, you know, at this time, we don't know, but they're looking for the boat on behalf of the British government. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they are assassinated by a man in a plane. The most ridiculous revenge stare I have seen in a movie in a long time where the parents get killed and then she looks at the camera and like in this this actress has like the most like like she's very beautiful but she has like the most like she has like cat eyes mm-hmm. like she has like like yeah that I, that's as close as like just they're very, very they're striking very bright blue eyes yeah, yeah and and just and the music cue and the zoom in on her face I, is like the it, it's the silent version of no I <laughs> it's crazy. I rewatched that little shot beforehand yeah I love that shot it's it's great but it's it's also insane yeah it, it but it's it again like she has such a distinct look. That it really works with that zoom in and that cue and just the kind of look on her face. She, re- I think, she really sells right. like, that kind of that moment for her. And so he he finally runs into Melina and she's again, as I mentioned before, there's that kind of moment that John Glenn saw in his head where she has she's has a crossbow, right? And she shoots a guy behind Bond, which I have a lot to say about the crossbow. Yeah. So she takes off her head and her hat or little like mask or whatever. Her hair flows down, kind of like what you kind of want in a Bond girl, just in terms of this, like, a really distinct and beautiful look. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Bond and them go to escape. Right. Nick. At which point we get At to, one point, Nick. Yes. <laughs> a guy tries to <laughs> tries to break in to yeah. Bond's car. The Lotus. The yes. Lotus. And it as soon as he uses his arm to break open the passenger side window, the it, the car responds by blowing up. Yeah. Well, what else? I mean, there's there's a bunch of high tech missiles in there. Will you remember? You remember the spy who loved me? This I is know. a submarine car. Bond's like looks at it and he's just like, uh. Yeah, he's like very disturbed that he yeah. has to drive in this car, in which is followed by. But I will say this. That the movie does have a legitimately up until a point, and I'll get to that. 
but it has a legitimately good pace that's where what I, it just feels like a roller coaster ride. That's what I was going to say. It really just has like one of the better pacings of the movie. It, it is. I do want to say it is interesting, though, as watching Bond as a series, kind of like how we're doing it and yeah. watching it in retrospect. Because I, I, I wouldn't also say that it's not a very meaty movie either. Like, I, it, it is kind of more to me driven by the crazy action stuff but because it's so bonkers it's entertaining yeah and it's grounded because i think roger moore is i'm starting to like him more and more as we watch i'm start, but i am starting to like him uh as we like i always liked him but like even more so yeah um and so it's it is grounded by certain elements of likability but you know it it is interesting. Like I wonder if this would have been satisfying to me just watching. It just as an overall, yeah. Like to it, an extent, I I would I, would I like imagine. this movie. Liked I liked Fast and Furious Seven. That's like kind of how I enjoyed this movie. Okay, enough. Like in terms of and I and I actually do quite enjoy that movie. Yeah. But it's like enough groundedness. But it's more because it's like a bonkers action movie. Yeah, yeah. No, I I would agree. I mean. I'm, I, I, it's a very interesting point, and it's also just because you know you you get added things like you see the not Blofeld, the the man, bald man in wheelchair, and you right. get like you know that stuff, and you you've kind of had a history of these insane Bond stunts, so you get to see more insane Bond stunts. Bond reports back in and is and is is reprimanded for not getting the guy, right? But yeah. he ha- he has a backup. He he saw another man there, and he saw the man who was paying Hector. Mm-hmm. So the idea is if we can find this man. We can find, you know, we can still get the information. Right. And they're just like, all right, whatever. Like, they're kind of pissed at Bond, you know, or they maybe they want to fuck him now. Who knows? <laughs> uh, as, you know, everybody just. So. Uh, well, okay. Can I say this? Because, so this scene following his scene with Q, which yeah. I will talk about. Yeah. But, follow, but with those two scenes, it did. And I wrote this down. It really genuinely seems that nobody likes Bond. <laughs> yeah. No, it, it, it can. Because we're it's, adding more and more characters, but it's like everybody doesn't seem to like this guy. And it, and it's just like, I really, like, how have we not had our movie where he's just the straight-up villain in, in a movie where, like, everybody's trying to take down the super spy I will, and they can't do it because he's yeah. just fucking his way around everything. There is, because there is, I'm not going to spoil it, but there there is a movie now that we've kind of talked about this that I really want you to see going mm. coming up. Uh, somewhere down the line, okay. fairly soon, but wait, we'll I'll, we'll get to that in a couple right, months. But I'm gonna say what this next scene is. Yeah. So so basically, <laughs> they, they I'll I'll set it up. Okay. So they're like, uh, so Tanner and uh, Minister of the Vents are like, just just use the identigraph. Go to Q. Use the identigraph. Then they go to Q's uh, office. They go to Q's lab, and there's all these again the great like uh, Q moments. Like he uh, more looks at a guy, he's like, "How's your arm? Oh, doing great." And then the cast kind of comes out and that was again. awesome. Yeah, and, and yeah. it's just stuff like that. Yeah. And they talk about like, "Oh man, they're getting the load." The umbrella that comes down and closes over somebody, and which I don't know how that would be useful at all. Well, you get you give it to a guy, and yeah, then, and and then more is like uh, screaming in the rain, it's like, "Come on!" And then we get <laughs> to this, yeah, the, uh, the identigraph. So, so they go into this room at one point. And they sit down, and then he says something like, "All right, well, we're gonna help you. You're gonna help me identify this guy." And and they do. I will say this: they do. There's a line of exposition where they say, um, well, "This will cross reference cross reference like the most wanted lists of like all the, the like different the, agencies the CIA, around the world." The yeah. KGB. So I will I will say that. But what they proceed to do was Bond just sits in a chair and cues at a computer. 
And Bond just vaguely describes what this guy looks like. Oh, like he had this type of hairstyle, I think, and he was wearing glasses and he had a broad nose. And Q is just like typing this all in onto a computer. And what comes up is the most poorly rendered digital just kind of like graph effects. Uh, You know what it looks like? You know when you're in those drawing books and it's like it shows you like step one, two, three, four of like a character being drawn. And like the first is like the circle and the second one is like the one with the crosses in yeah. its face and the other ones like with vague shapes to represent. That's what it fucking looked like. <laughs> and then, so he's just doing all that kind of stuff. So that's already nonsense to me. And then he was like, all right, well, it's like, so, and then they, and then they do it. And then it looks like this really fucking dated, like digital man with no really defining features and then they have the audacity to say, that's him. What? So I'm and watching then, this movie. And then they print it out, and it prints out, they, they find the guy's name, and it prints out the guy's real face, and I'm, I'm losing my mind. I'm, so I'm sitting on my chair, I'm watching this movie, and I'm looking forward, and I'm like, oh yeah, no, this is kind of, I remember this, the identograph, and he's yeah. putting together, and then he has the joke where Q accidentally gives the guy a Pinocchio nose, and Roger Moore's like, no, 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 not not that long, Q. It's like, oh, sorry. I look over to you. Your hands are just all over your face. You're trying to contain your laughter. You're just, you're just lost it at this point. I, I don't know why this got to be so. Because just conceptually, it's just because it's so dated. Yeah. And because it, it's so stupid, and it's like one of those like. Because I think this is what pissed me off about it. It's a twofold thing. Because okay. it was one of those like. It's one of those things in like a movie like this where they're trying to be like, look how crazy technology is. Mm-hmm. Like, so it's one of those. And then it's also folded because you and I have often talked about as people who are into animation as somebody who's into digital artistry myself. Yeah. Like the major thing that I always argue against is somebody being like, oh, well, you just press the animation button and then it's done. And that's essentially what happened to this movie. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, my God. And, and listen. Let me be clear. I loved every minute of it, but it drove me insane. So, yes. So, they use the identograph. They identify this man, and they basically connect him to this place in Italy. And uh, uh, there's a there's a, another spy there by the name of Luigi. Uh-huh. No Mario, just yeah. Luigi. That- you, you can tell that he is a Luigi because he talks just like Luigi. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Mario. Yeah. Oh, No. It's a bond. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but they go to this beautiful ski resort area in uh, in the Italian Alps. Yeah. And uh, Bond basically hooks up with this guy. And uh, Luigi hooks him up with uh, Christavos. Yeah. Uh, who is this kind of big money player who has been awarded by the British government, who seems like he is an ally to uh, Bond's team. Uh, and so they meet at this ski resort. At which point Bond gets the meat. Uh, uh, figure skating The more we prodigy. talk about this, so at one point, a child, at one point, Nick, a child wants to fuck Bond. <laughs> yeah, so I want to get this out of the way because I did tease this to you while we were watching the movie. So in real life at this time. Right. I did the calculations of yeah. how old everybody is. Yeah, so you want to... You you so I you? calculated this, and as soon as I saw this girl, when I saw that she wanted to fuck Bond, yeah. I was preparing myself for the worst. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, I turned to you, and I was like, all right, in real life, this actress is... Uh, 
this actress is uh, 23, yeah. and Bond is 54 yeah. at the time. And I said, well, wait till you hear how old she's supposed to be within the context of the movie. <laughs> to which I responded, that is the last thing I wanted to hear. <laughs> yeah, so ac- according to the original script, no. she's 16. No! And to, no! to Bond's credit, he completely refuses every single advance. Yes, he, he does. Oh, what a gentleman. But even it, it still gets kind of gross because he still kind of uses it to his advantage later on. Like, he still kind of, like, right, flirts with her to get information. To get information, yeah. But, like, so but at she's one point... Like, she's, like, jumping in the bed and... And Vaughn's like trying to disfuse it. So she's jumping in the she first of all, she basically sneaks into his hotel room. Yeah. She's like jumping in the bed and Vaughn's like, Oh, but you're you're training right now. And yeah. she's like, Oh, you know, it it, it will uh, define my abs. Yeah, yeah, something like, like, like that. But so okay, here's the note, because I told you there's some notes in here I did want you to hear yeah. particularly. So at one point, because of just the way that the the main Bond girl carries herself. Like, I said, all right, well, the twist is definitely she's going to be a robot. Because just the way she carries herself, it just seems like she's a robot and her creators got killed. Mm-hmm. Like, that that's what it kind of <laughs> seemed like to me. All right, and then as the movie went on, we get this girl, BB, yeah. and uh, various other actresses in this movie have this weird doll-like smile to them. <laughs> so then I was like, wait, is everybody a, a robot, robot in this movie? And then she offers herself just throws herself at bond and bond says no and i was like oh my god is bond a robot in this movie is that the twist that everybody's a fucking robot that was and it was so just not okay No, it's a very weird and, plot line. And guess what? Guess what? What makes it worse is that she has no business being in the movie. No. At not yeah. one point does her character help out, pay off in, in any right. way, shape, or form. It is the most useless point. And I usually hate to say like something's useless or pointless because I give creators the benefit of the doubt that something has a role in a movie. There, There's no other, I guess, comic relief. Yeah. And and then I gotta skip ahead to this part. At one point, at the end of the movie, the only where the only place this goes is that I guess she stands up to the villain at one point. Yeah, and then because basically Christavos is her sponsor, right? So she he calls him. It's weird because he calls him like uncle, but basically he's not actually her uncle. It's, she's see he, that's what I was confused by. Yeah, she, I thought... she's not. He's not actually her uncle. He's but a, he's then a, they imply that he wants to fuck her too. Yeah, yeah, like so it, he, it's he's like... he's a sponsor. And he's like, I'm going to sponsor you. You're going to get the gold medal in the next Olympics. Right, you're right. But so the movie, at the end of the movie, Topol's character, what's his name? What's the character's name? Uh, Columbo. Columbo helps out Bond. Like, yeah. you know, saves him at the last minute. This is skipping ahead, but I got to mention it. He's, he helps out Bond. And then when all is said and done and everybody's calm, it cuts to BB, like, tending to, to Columbo. Yeah. To which Bond, it cuts back to Bond and says, well, I guess she found uh, her new, a new sponsor. And I was like, I don't like the implications of that at all. <laughs> I, I don't like Because it's like, this movie went so far out. And then it's like, and I don't know if they're saying that. The implication is like, oh, man, because I didn't see, I didn't see Columbo. <laughs> like actively rebuking her. So, oh, yeah. oh don't so, like it. But there's, so there's is that. We get the moment in the village uh, where she's buying her crossbow. Again. Yeah. Oh, okay. So, Nick, at one point, 
She buys so earlier in the movie, her weapon of choice is a crossbow, right? Mm-hmm. And as if you didn't see the movie, you saw it with me. But she buy she uses a crossbow. Then we go to this other town in the ski village, and she's buying a crossbow there to use for action. So then when we get into the third act of the movie in this tiny little town, then she has a crossbow. So my question is, is she just buying a crossbow at wherever she goes? goes? Like, it's not the same crossbow. No. Like, so she is she just keeping on buying the same crossbow? Yeah. Um, you know, you can't really take crossbows about across borders. It's yeah. a little difficult. But Nick, speaking of the, at one point, Nick. At one point. Bond plays hockey with a group of goons. And Nick... I think you misunderstood me because you may have in your mind that he's playing hockey like a game of hockey, like right. it's him versus three goons. No, he's playing hockey with the goons he's playing- as if the goons were the fucking puck. <laughs> and the scoreboard lights up whenever they go into he the goal. He throws the goons into the goal and it gives Bond a score he on wins. the scoreboard. He wins 3 to nothing. But I do want to mention... This movie is crazy. Before I that, so we, I, I actually also really like the entire uh, snow ski sequence yeah because it starts off really cool because it's bond you know there's um uh there's a dyke di- a a west german uh dicathlete who is uh now with the kgb right he's uh you know he's defected and um he is out to kill bond and what's cool is that it starts off as kind of a cool little spy sequence where bond is kind of knows he's being followed he's just trying to blend in with crowds and right, stuff right right charles dance shows up at one <laughs> charles point charles dance is in this movie yeah it's one of his early film roles <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. um and then like they go to the ski jump and bond's kind of cornered cuz he has like yeah. the dicathlete all, all that stuff again as bonkers as i say this movie is it's it's in these little moments are actually good and i think was what makes and it I enjoyable. Want, this is what i want to say about it cuz there's a lot of really cool shots and it's like directed really well, edited really cool. And so John Glenn is going to be the director of the next five Bond movies mm. or, or this one plus four more. And I'm very familiar with his last two because he directs the two Dalton movies and knowing the two Dalton movies very well and not knowing these, but really discovering for your eyes only. I really like the way that Glenn directs his action. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I agree. And, I agree. Because I think just there's a really, even comparison to some of the other Bonds, there's a really distinctive look to the action. There's a lot of cool shots. And he really kind of emphasizes uh, the really great moments. Then there's also a moment in the sequence where uh, Bond is getting away and the dicathlete first throws his skis yeah. at Bond. He throws his ski. No, he throws his gun at first, first as if like, oh, well, well, I ran out of bullets. Maybe I can hit him with this fucking gun. So he throws the gun. Yeah. And then he does, as you mentioned, he picks up the motorcycle. And just, just throws, and just tosses it at him. chucks it at Bond. Yeah. It's great. And But then it's also implied that like as he's running away, you see the tire also get thrown at him yeah. too. It's it's great. This movie, the Bond movies thus far have been a good case because I'm often on maybe the controversial side of the practical versus is digital argument um but this movie i will say is a case to be made of how effective you know practical tactile effects can be because i mean i'll be on like even like that earlier helicopter stuff is really good Mm -hmm. like the chase stuff is very good because it i mean it is all like real stunts so so. we have a lot to get through and yeah just to quickly so quickly go through the plot because i do want to talk about some more stuff specifically so basically now um Chris Avos has convinced Bond that it's Columbo that's trying to sell. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Columbo and Chris Avos are rivals. Like, they're just, they don't like each other. Right. Um, 
It, cr- it turns out that they're former partners, but th- they're rivals now. Who I, I, I'll keep it short and simple with him. I, I did like him. I think. Who, Columbo? Yeah. Oh, I, I think he's yeah, like that, kind of like a great, like, oh, like a jolly yeah. friend I character. I think Pole gives a great energy to Columbo. That's what I was going to say yeah. is about the Columbo character is that he gives it this, this kind of weird but like just fun energy and he really does play off more very well. Like even that first scene that they have together where like, because basically, so they go to a casino that's like owned by Topol or for by Columbo. You know, Bond's like trying to get more information from the Countess uh, and then the Countess dies. Uh, Columbo picks up Bond and basically says, you're looking for the wrong guy. Kristavos mm. is the one trying to sell the ATAC. I'm the, I'm the, I'm your ally here. And I, I really like that scene too. It's actually probably a great, it's a, one of my favorite scenes just in terms of like, I liked a lot of the d- dynamic and just Columbo saying like, Oh, by the end of the night, we'll be friends. So they, they raid this boat. Um, and so, and it's proven that Kristavos is the villain. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then that's when we get the, Kick off the, the kicking the car off the cliff moment, right? In which the car's going up the hill. Oh my god, Nick! At one point, Nick, it, the car's driving up a hill and it's intercutting comedically with Bond having to run up this large flight of stairs. Because yeah. <laughs> it's like, and the music's like, yeah, but it does lead to a great shot of the car coming in, and then you see Bond step into like this tunnel, yeah, and then like this the little zoom in, you see him kind of aim and just perfect. Shot oh, it's of great, the car. yeah, it's a great stuff, and yeah, even even that moment again, a way that Glenn does direct, you know, I think Glenn made the right call with the Bond kicking the car off. I think that was a good hill to die on, and uh, I think it's again, it's a very effective sequence. Even the car just rolling down the hill is really great, yeah, and then Bond still gets equipped. Uh, yeah. Equip inside, so they eventually figure out. You know, they, he re- reunites with Melina, mm-hmm. and they figure out. Okay, well, he, you know, his her father had these notes. Oh, the, she can read the shorthand. You know, dear father daughter, they know each other very well. Oh, here is where the the boat sunk. Mm-hmm. So they go off and they dive. And I, did you could you tell that this was uh, dry for wet? Uh, what is that exactly? Does that mean that means that they, I've been hearing that a lot on the Aquaman shoot that's going on. So right dry for wet means that it's supposed it's representing you underwater, yeah. but it's shot like on a soundstage. Uh, so the whole so they did still film a lot of it underwater. Yeah, uh, like with Thunderball, they just built like underwater sets and stuff like that, and just filmed most of it underwater. But uh, Carol Bouquet has very bad sinus issues, so mm-hmm. she can't do deep sea diving. So they took a lot of effort to do like at that time really effective dry for wet so they filmed it with like big air fans and you know slow motion and uh, they yelled it added alka seltzer bubbles in post to make it look like they were breathing oh wait so it's not i'm I'm sorry I'm, i'm so stupid so it's not even like underwater in a controlled environment like it's like it's all dry so it's all honest that's crazy holy no i legitimately wrote down how like spectacular the underwater stuff looks oh like, well i'm glad they, they i was really convinced well, that they were well as i will say a lot of it is still actually underwater effects. yeah so like you know a lot of it's like again like the wide shots and like you know when it's like more still did a lot of deep sea diving for for the shoot it's yeah just like anything but with, like the stuff in the boat uh in the boat it's, it's again it's a mix yeah. so uh some of it was actually built on an underwater set yeah um and some of it like Basically, anytime it's uh, Melina in a close-up or Bond and Melina in a close-up together, yeah. uh, that is on, on a downstairs. I didn't notice that at all. Yeah. Well, that's, that's oh, cool. Oh, am I stupid? Like, you looked no, at me no, like I should have no, noticed. No, 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 because I, I, I was going to say that I thought that, because, again, they were supposed to film all that. So they weren't planning on doing any soundstage work for the with the water stuff. 
Mm-hmm. And then they found out, like, Melina, like, legitimately couldn't or she would, you know, be killed because mm-hmm. it's of her, her she right, wouldn't right, right. be able to breathe. So I, I was going to say is, like, they did a fantastic job basically hiding that and seamlessly integrating all the, the stage stuff with the actual stuff they filmed underwater. Right. So they did a, again, it's that kind of, they did a really good job with it. But basically what I want to get to, so they're in the boat now. So Nick, but at one point, Nick. At one point, Nick. They have to fight a man who's... In a diving, in, like, a, in a diving mech suit, <laughs> it looks like it's like it these, looks like it could have been a kaiju. Yeah, <laughs> in I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, it's essentially like the big daddies from Bioshock. Yeah. That's essentially what it looks like, like a prototype of Black Manta's suit, or like to an extent, like a bulkier version of what Ripley rides in Alien. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of. It's kind of and it's it a, was the most like sci-fi looking thing, and it was amazing. And it's fantastic. It was great. It's, again, it's just so it was effective sequence, so effectively done. That sequence, also the underwater stuff, had some pretty legit scares too. Yeah, like, I, I was invested. There's in another that. shark that shows up. Yeah, which at one Bond is really like yeah. rival with sharks yeah. in these movies. <laughs> like he's a very much like, uh, yeah. So then, yeah, so then basically... But we, that fight with that mech suit is really good. No, it's a really yeah. good... No, again, really well directed, really well edited. And again, just with the under... with Again, you know, underwater effects and everything like that. It just It's a solid... But was that dry for what? Uh, some of it... I'd have to watch that sequence again. I didn't notice I any of I it. I don't think that sequence is dry for what. I think that sequence is at an underwater set. Right, yeah, that that's kind of what I meant I, because just the physics of it, yeah. I'm like, that could not have been... Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's uh, it's really neat. I'll show you sometime in the bonus features. But they show like the without the effects, and it's like shows how cool it kind of it looks without all the like the stage set effects. <laughs> One of my notes is just underlined twice. This movie is bonkers. <laughs> yeah. So then they get the they get the attack. They r- rise back to the surface. Christavos is there to take the attack away. So they they go to the monastery. They do the rock climbing thing. Yeah. There is a but but for, for, before I forget the there's this parrot that the father had. Yes. Which repeats basically where they're taking the right, the yeah. attack. That's to, like the, 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 the third. They hand it off the goal goal. Yeah, and then so Bond, it's the aspirin bottle yeah. of uh, this movie. <laughs> so Bond goes to a church, goes into a confessional. It, it, wait, it, is that the most deep cut reference on this episode? Yes. Part? Yeah, hundred. I'm not even going to explain it. Yeah, don't explain it, please. Um, so Bond goes into a church, goes into the confessional. He says, "Forgive me, Father, for I have sinned." The curtain opens, and it's Q. That was amazing. And Q's like. I'll say 007, and then basically like, oh, there's a million of these St. Like Augustine churches here. It's just here. so relentlessly silly. But the one thing I will say is as we, I think, and I very much enjoyed this movie, but yeah. I do think it hits a major wall when it comes to its third acts. Because I, I did think like, I did feel like, Okay, all right, like, no, I, you know, this here, is long. The thing is, and is the that, thing is, like, the third act actually, oddly, is not even as kinetically paced mm. as the rest of the movie was, and even to the point that yeah, as it's, it went it's a little on... Bit, it is a little bit more key of a spy sequence than, yeah. like, the rest of the action has been. It's very much a little bit more of, like, they're sneaking around there. It's like, it, like you kind of said, it's like a Metal Gear Solid sequence, right, more so right. than anything else. But it's, like, like even, like, I, I can the see guy that, threatening Bond at the top of the mountain by taking off, like, by... Um, Plugging yeah. his thing, like I'm like, this could be shorter. You like, could, yeah, you could have done. Yeah, there, like there's three hooks. You could have just done two of them, right? Yeah, you, you don't. Yeah, um, I, I get it. Um, but yeah, I mean, and then the movie ends with a Margaret Thatcher impersonator. Yeah, <laughs> Margaret Thatcher talks to a parrot. 
at the end of this movie. But but Melina does have a great line where she strips and then says, for your eyes only. That was awesome. That's great. That was great. That was great. And again, I, once again, what works for me is because their relationship wasn't gro- – like, I was actually yeah. shocked – there's a scene earlier on in the movie where they just met and they're in a bedroom and it doesn't go there at all. No, and it, I was it's very, very impressed slow. with that. I mean, to an extent, there is a remake of this movie where it is more, and I'm not saying the movie presents it as much as this such, but you could read it in, in like, if you remade this movie, you could do it as more of a father-daughter relationship just in terms of Bonds, the, the, the veteran who's been on the revenge trip and, you know, hasn't been satisfied. That's why he's trying to like take it away from her. Mm-hmm. Like her to say like, do you don't need revenge? And I kind of wish sometimes, like, if you had more of a modern thematic to it, you could have even connected it more back to Tracy's death and mm-hmm. him going after Blofeld. Like, I, I killed the guy who killed my wife, and it didn't do anything for me. And, right. And, like, if you re-rate this movie... You, or, can make, you can put more meat on this bone, right, on these bones. But, like, it's still... The relationship between the two of them works, and I... At the end of the day, I really liked uh, Carol Bouquet's performance. Yes, I agree. It, it, to an yeah. extent, like, you... I think like the stoicness and that roboticness. I think it works for her character and works for her. Yeah, look. she wasn't lifeless. Yeah. Like it's just she, she, she did just bring held she did bring life to it. Yeah. And I it's I think we've been on a solid run of of Von women. Like not again not great. No, they've her, been getting better. They, it, yeah. It's been on a solid run. Yeah, and I, I I do like their relationship and the it's the restraint. It's the restraint of they don't have that moment until the end. Right. And, and I the think, one Bond girl that he does bed earlier in the movie, I bought too. Oh, the the, the uh, yeah. Countess, yeah. yeah. No, I agree. I, I bought. I bought I like I, the, I, they had a good chemistry with each other, and I, I feel like they were both just in that yeah. moment. Uh, Nick, I will say I really like this. Especially I, I thoroughly about- enjoyed it. Like I said, it is relentlessly goofy and silly. This is like the kind of thing when you talk about the sillier Bond tropes. This is like the type of movie I would go to. I would even see myself watching. Uh, this again, uh, I, oh, I'm definitely going to add some more um, But see, I think, and I know we're, we're going over a little bit, but I do think that this is what's so fascinating about looking at these franchises in retrospect because, again, at the time, getting a lean Bond movie like this, you like you go to the movies and you watch one movie at a time, you're like, eh. But now that you have it as kind of like a franchise and you can watch them and binge them, like it is kind of nice that you have a movie like this. And I mm-hmm. think this is one of the staying powers of yeah. Bond that you can go to the serious ones, but then you have a goofy one. Yeah. All right. You want to get to the aftermath then? Let's go. All right. We're going to do this quickly. Um, just have a couple of points. Uh, so the film released in the UK on June 24th, 1981 in the U S two days later, uh, it broke the opening day record in the UK mm-hmm. um, and eventually made $195 million worldwide. So still a slight step below Moonraker, but still a very, very, very successful movie mm. and uh, $55 million in the United States. Um, it had mixed reviews upon release, mm-hmm. as these movies do. Uh, some people, you know, it's a, really just, again, some people liked the lower keyness. Some people did feel it was too long. Mm-hmm. Um I said, Darren Malcolm of The Guardian said it was too long and pretty boring between the stunts, but the stunts are very high quality. Mm, Um, And it's just kind of, you know, the reviews are that. And I think this is one that a lot of people, when defending more, it's definitely like a film that people will bring up as kind of one of Moore's more underrated gems Mm -hmm. uh, of the Bond franchise. He is very good. Yes. Like, I like him a lot in this role. Yeah. Because I I think... think, Because you can tell he loves it. Yeah. And I think that's what kind of sells it. Because, you know, like, when we talk about, like, the worst of Connery's performances... Yeah. Where you can kind of tell, like, he's just not into it. I feel like more, no matter what, he's... He always looks checked in. He's always really having fun. Yeah. Like I said, how people described him. It's just he looked like he was having a time of his life as Mm -hmm. Bond. 
Um, so one, this is the last uh, Bond movie that's uh, solely distributed by United Artists. Mm-hmm. So at this time, United Artists was kind of almost facing bankruptcy due to the whole Heaven's Gate bomb at the Ox Office. It's a very famous bomb. You can look it up on Wikipedia or something. I don't need to describe it to you. Uh, but this movie basically saved them enough where they could kind of go off for a little bit of time. But between this movie and the next movie, uh, United Artists is bought by MGM. Okay. So this will be something that kind of plays in a little bit more down the line. But at this time, now the Bond rights are uh, still kind of United Artists is still a division of MGM, but they they do have a new boss to answer to, essentially. All this means to me is that we will be seeing the MGM logo on the DVDs we watch instead yes. of the United Artists. <laughs> Potentially. At some point, we will. Yeah. Um, and then, more interestingly, um, at the end of production of For Your Eyes Only, Roger Moore tells Cubby Broccoli that this will be his last Bond movie. Really? At this time, Moore is just like, all right, I'm satisfied with this. You know, I'm happy with where we are. I am getting older. <laughs> and I think it's about time for me to step down. But we do have two more Roger Jones <laughs> movies to go. So there, there is a story to that. And we'll, we'll talk about it. But before we get to our teasing of the next time, we got to talk about Harrison Ford. So yeah, all right. I, I don't know. Who is Harrison Ford in this movie? I, I was going to say he's either uh, like the owner of the resort that they stay at mm-hmm. or he's a coach of the rival to Yes, uh, BB, yes. He's I, the coach of the rival to BB Doll. I love like, it. And he's, you know, he kind of, you know, he has his person tease her and stuff like that. I like it. All right. All right. So, next time. Next Yeah, where where are we going next time on next the Bond? Next time on the Bond franchise, we are introduced to the second woman that has pussy in her name. <laughs> Her name's got to be Octopussy. That is our next Bond movie. I've been waiting to say that for like five episodes. I have been waiting to say her name's got to be Octopussy. Yeah, yes, next movie in the Bond team uh, uh, is Octopussy. All right. Well, uh, but we are not doing a Bond movie next No, we're time. not going to watch Octopussy next. Yes, we're watching a Godzilla movie in which I can uh, introduce you to uh, a character known as Gigan in Godzilla his, versus Gigan. His name's got to be Gigan. Yes, yeah, his name's got to be Gigan. <laughs> All right, we're done. I'm done. We're good. All right, we got some plugs. Yes. Plug it, plug it, plug it. We got Twitter, bonzillapod at gmail.com. That's not our Twitter account. That's our email. <laughs> our email is bonzillapod at gmail.com. Our Twitter account is bonzilla007, as well as our facebook.com slash bonzilla007. We have a SoundCloud page slash bonzilla007. Go ahead, like, and subscribe. iTunes and SoundCloud. Um, yeah, that's about, that's what we have. All right. Good. All right. All right. I'm Nick. Yeah. And I'm Will. And at one point in this movie. (laughs) Try to think of a crazy thing that happens. At one point in this movie. At one point in this movie, Bond kills a guy by having him drive through a flower shop and then tells the woman who he just ordered flowers from to send it to the man's funeral. Not as nice as you think, Bond. No. Not as nice as you think.